let's talk about God in movies. In particular, Chris Pratt's film, The Tomorrow War. Now this movie, it talks about dads being dads, men stepping up to the plate and being the alpha men they were designed to be. Because when we look at the world around us, Hollywood has depicted dads being obsolete, nimwits, being dumb for like the past 20, 30 years. And it's done this to the effect of ruin. All sorts of cultural rot gut happens when men don't be men. And this movie shows you what it's like to step up to that plate, to be courageous, not cowardly, not passive, and really learn how to use your manhood well. It's a huge theme in this movie, and for that reason alone, it is worth your time to watch. But that's not the only important biblical theme that we find in it. It also illustrates repentance and forgiveness, and it does it extremely well. Now, this movie is not as transcendental as something like It's a Wonderful Life, or even as visually stimulating as the original Jurassic Park film. Nonetheless, it's really unique as an offering from modern Hollywood because it promotes biblical values in a way that you just don't see across the board. In fact, we oftentimes find these biblical values of men being men, being eroded, the nuclear family being eroded. This movie illustrates them and it highlights them on purpose. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. We're going to be doing an in-depth discussion on this movie, The Tomorrow War. And if you'd like to hang around to hear just the cultural commentary that's going to naturally come out of that, please do, because I'm going to talk about a lot of cultural points, like men being men and repentance and forgiveness and courage. But also, if you don't want any spoilers on the movie, here's your warning. There will be spoilers. You have been warned. And also, while we're at the beginning, let me say, the music you hear is the soundtrack from The Tomorrow War. Obviously, I don't own that. That belongs to its respective owners. I've slowed it down. I've tampered with it just a little bit so that I can kind of avoid the algorithms, but obviously that does not belong to me. Okay, so let's talk about this movie and what it tells us about fatherhood, being a man, being an alpha, and really stepping into the role that God designed you to be. The movie opens up and it really tells you everything that it's going to be about. There's an opening scene where Chris Pratt, he falls from the sky you know, just out of space, nowhere, into a pool on top of a skyscraper. And in that scene, you find out just about how much of reality you're going to be asked to suspend throughout this, because it takes that scene and then immediately has a flashback to the events that led up to it and shows you Chris Pratt at home with his family. And in this, it tells you this movie is entirely about family. Moreover, it tells you that this movie is going to be a microcosm of life and death. It's a movie about mortality. While Chris Pratt is at home with his family, they're watching a soccer game on television and some soldiers just appear, manifest in the middle of the soccer field and they tell everybody that's watching in the world that a future war is coming and the aliens are going to invade the earth and they're going to kill everybody. Humanity will be extinct. So early on, you know that family is a big theme and also mortality. This is going to be a microcosm of life and death, which also makes it very predictable. Here's another spoiler that the aliens are already on Earth, that just for one reason or another, they are awakened. The fact that they are told early on they're going to die, it's just representing our own mortality. We know from the time we start being able to reason and understand that we only have so much time on this earth, whether it be 75, 78 years, however many years God gives us is the time we have. We know that death is waiting. This movie takes and shrinks that down into a nice package for us. It's similar to the way the Titanic story encapsulates our own mortality. You know, since the sinking of that luxury liner, people have been really obsessed with that story. 
And it's always fascinated me how we, we do fantasize and romanticize it, but there is a logical reason behind that. You know, there's hopes and dreams. People are just taking a voyage across the sea and suddenly they're going to sink. Maybe they were first class passengers, second class, third class. You know, God gives us a different amount of talents. We're born into all sorts of different families. What are we gonna do between our moment now and when we die? The Titanic is a very serious encapsulation of that. It kind of reduces all of life down to a few hours. It's just a microcosm of life and death. This movie is very much in that vein. Chris Pratt knows that he is going to die. The, well, I should say humanity as in general knows they're all going to die if they do not do something about these aliens and they have to then make their decision. Are they gonna be courageous? Are they gonna be cowardly? Are they going to stay together in their family? Are they gonna break away? What are you going to do now that you know that death is waiting for you? Which again, the monsters in this movie who are the white spikes as they are called, these alien creatures, they are just a generic representation of death. They're really ugly monsters, not terribly creative, but death itself is ugly. Death is uncreated. It doesn't look a lot like the created animals and things around us. The white spikes in this movie, they can't be killed by destroying their brain. Again, a representation of death. Death is just hungry. Hell is just hungry. There's not a lot of reason going on there. It just wants food. You know, the white spikes have to be killed by their throat or their stomach. Again, they're just here to eat, just like death. The white spikes are a representation of death. Ugly, so forth and so on. But Chris Pratt in this, he is a dad willing to be a dad. An interesting dialogue happens when Chris Pratt is there in his house. Before he even finds out that the aliens have invaded and that there's this future war, he's someone who is already an alpha male. He's married, he's got a child, he had a span of time that he spent in the military, he's gone out, he's become accomplished in his field of work, and he sends out a resume to the world around him applying for a new job. However, the world rejects him. And while that might seem like a small detail, this is actually really brilliantly put because our modern world does reject alpha males. The modern world rejects alpha males. They don't want men to be men. They, they want betas to be in charge of things. And look, God died for everyone's sins, but men do need to step up to the plate and be men. And when we put people who are not willing to have the stomach to combat evil in charge of things, when we put people who don't have the stomach to, to do mature things in, in charge of the world, a lot of chaos creeps in. When you put beta males in charge, a lot of wicked things happen. God created all of the hormones, God created all of the emotions, and there's a proper place for anger, aggression, and a lot of the, the male attributes that our world just wants to deny. Testosterone has its place in the natural order. God gave Adam a tool. Anger itself is not inherently sinful. In the church, we've really been spiritually immature in telling our people to never be angry. No, God created all the emotions, all the hormones. The devil can only pervert them. When Adam was created, anger is a tool. You're out there fighting something like a saber-toothed tiger, you get angry. You have a little bit extra energy. You have a little bit extra strength and power to persevere through that battle. But of course, as we know, anger naturally doesn't stay very long. You might get mad at something 10, 15 minutes later, the anger just evaporates. 
The sin happens when you choose to keep re-evoking that anger and living in it, and it becomes something which is more of a lifestyle than just something which arrives in the situation when it is needed. We see the first sin, and here's where I'm going to introduce a new term. When Adam is in the garden, and yes, all of this ties back into the Tomorrow War. When Adam is in the garden, he is passive. The new term I want to introduce is modus deceptio. We have modus operandi when talking about crimes, you know, how a, a, a villain might use their methodology to kill, steal, or destroy, whatever they're doing. The modus operandi, the MO of a criminal. Well, the modus deceptio is how did you get to this point? How did you get to this problem? What is the mode of deception? How did you find yourself in error? Adam found himself in error in the garden because he was passive when he should have been more assertive. He should have gone over there with his wife and been like, hey, the serpent is not worthy of your glory. You're not talking to him. We're going back. We're not, we're not dealing with the serpent. In this movie, the theme of cowardice and passivity and how that leads to destruction is found throughout the film. Chris Pratt, who is an alpha man, is rejected by the world and he ends up um, going to the future to fight in a battle. But before all that happens, he's a, a high school teacher. And in the time frame between everybody finding out that there is a future war going on, the Tomorrow War, and him actually stepping into battle while he's still at high school, the whole world is cowardly. The whole world is Adam being passive. And what happens when parents are passive, when men are passive, the children are nihilistic. When one generation of people decides, oh, you know, the slippery slope, it's, it's not really real. You know, to put this in modern America, there aren't really people who want to dismantle the nuclear family. There aren't really people who want to bring an evil like socialism, which kills millions of people over here. There's not really people who want to do that. When you are passive and don't say no to these sorts of evils, the next generation that comes after you will be nihilistic. In this movie, when Chris Pratt's at the high school, the whole world is cowardly, the children of cowards are nihilists. They're like, what's the point in living? Why don't we just all die right now? Let's just have like a mass suicide event. They don't obviously say that per se, but that's their attitude. There's no point to anything. Why are we here? Cowardice breeds nihilism. Well, Chris Pratt, he wants to teaches daughter logic and another theme that we find in this movie is science but it's not fake science like we have a lot of times in our modern world and the difference between real science and fake science is there are people who are godless who think they're atheistic but they've made science they're gone and they're not actually interested in truth facts innovation or logic they're just interested in using science as a club to get their sins advanced it's just how it is We've seen this for basically a year and a half here in America in the coronavirus era. Science has been used as a club to advance um, government power. They just want to use science to advance power. It's not actually interested in truth or facts. Well, in this movie, Chris Pratt emphasizes real science. And real science is truly woven into Christianity. Christ comes as the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus comes to us showing us like hard things go out and find the child in the manger even the word logic itself comes from the name of christ being the logos and i find it fascinating that he's teaching his daughter how to be reasoning and there's no mention of the fake sciences at all 
things like emotional intelligence, sociology, sociology, all of this hellish nonsense. There's no mention of it. And while we're on this topic, there's really no mention or one-liners about social justice, talking points, things like that. The movie is colorblind. And yes, the church should be colorblind. Those who tell you not to be colorblind, they hate forgiveness. If we are forgiving people, then we're going to be a colorblind people. But there's a lot of people who in the church, they claim like they're compassionate, but they want to keep the sins of the past alive. They want to put guilt on people who did not do things. And a lot of times they paint it really nicely, but it's just hellish. Being colorblind is correct. And for this movie to be so accurate in teaching forgiveness as it does, then it has to be colorblind as well. And it is. Uh, the closest thing they get to any sort of political destructive one-liner in the movie is they talk about uh, global temperature in one sentence. They make the statement that one degree is the difference between ice and water. And the aliens were already on Earth. Again, I mentioned that earlier, the white spikes. It's, it's very predictable that they were already on Earth uh, because this is a microcosm of death. The aliens represent death, so of course they're already with you. The curse of death is something we're born with, so obviously they're already there. But they make the one-liner because the, the explanation the movie gives for these aliens is they were frozen in ice. They landed in the year, I believe it's 946 A.D., and their logic is, well, they, they unthawed from the ice. And one character says, you know, one degree is the difference between ice and water. That's the closest thing it has to like an environmentalist, that sort of religion, that sort of belief system. Not the facts on cleaning up the earth, but the, the religion that goes on with that, the political ideology. But if they were trying to put that in there as a one-liner, like a climate change propaganda statement, they did a really bad job of it because when the aliens arrived in 946, the earth was not frozen at that point, and then they later got frozen. So you can't blame that on man-made climate change. That would just be a natural cycle of things. So if they did try to put that one-liner in there, they failed. Anyways, back to the movie. One of the beautiful things early on we find is the little girl telling her father that everything's gonna be right, you have a purpose. And in that you find generational tension you find the future actually calling to the past. And that's interesting because we tend to really think about time moving forwards, but there's so many answers to our future actually found in our past. This movie is very much about parents and children and dads being dads, but it's also about how we navigate through time. The future, the children, they are calling to the past for maturity. The child wants her dad to be mature. And it's an interesting thing, even when she's a little girl, and forgive me, I keep using the hotkey for the wrong picture. When the little girl, as we find here in this picture, she wants her dad to be a hero. And the science fiction twist on the movie is Chris Pratt goes to the future and he meets his daughter now as an adult. He is summoned to the future to fight in this war. He meets his daughter, Colonel Forrester. Her name is Muri Forrester, but he meets her and in this, she is still hungry for her dad to be a dad. There's this missing timeline, which the movie never shows, where Chris Pratt goes to the future and then he goes back and he's nihilistic and he ultimately dies in a car crash. And his daughter is really upset with him as a little girl because he splits off from her mom and she always wants him to come back and fix the family. 
And while that storyline is never played out in the movie, because Chris Pratt goes to the future and meets his daughter and none of that happens, when they meet one another, he meets a version of his daughter that didn't have him as a dad. And she is so desperate for her dad to be the hero. Now she is Colonel Forrester. She's the most important scientist on the earth. She's one of the leaders in this sort of global army against the, against the aliens, against death. So she's certainly an alpha in her right. She's an alpha Eve, but at the same time, she still needs her dad to be dad. She still needs the men to be men. And she tries to cope with that and say that she really doesn't, but ultimately she needs her dad to be her dad. And that's where we bring in how this theme is explored on a really in-depth level. Because Chris Pratt's dad, actually in the movie, who is J. Jonah Jameson from the Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, uh, he has left the Daily Bugle, he has left his uh, insurance commercials, and he is now in Chris Pratt's movie. No longer doing insurance, no longer doing newspaper stories, and now has been a man who has a lot of nice toys, he has nice guns, he has nice cars, access to an airplane, but yet he has abandoned his kid for the toys. He had been one who served in war, and when he got home from that, he thought he was too rough, too brutal for his own wife and kids, so he walked out on him, thinking it was the courageous thing to do, but it wasn't. It was the cowardly thing to do. It was very selfish, and it was a failure. Well, Chris Pratt is tempted to continue in his dad's footsteps when he is first called to this future war because they put an arm brain band on your arm and that's what allows you to travel through time. And Chris Pratt goes to his dad, J. Jonah Jameson from the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, and his dad can actually remove the band and he would be free to live his life and not have to worry about the future. That's the passive cowardly thing to do. Chris Pratt is tempted to do that, but after seeing how his own dad was cowardly, he says, no, I don't want to step into those shoes. He goes back, he takes the responsibility and goes to the future war where he meets his daughter. Now, in as much as this movie is a microcosm of death, it is also a microcosm of the slippery slope observation. A lot of people have been taught that the slippery slope argument is a fallacy. It is not. It is undefeated because it's an observation. It's not trying to argue a case or anything like that. It's just simply saying what we find in Luke 16.10. Whoever is wicked in little is wicked in much. Whoever is faithful in little is faithful in much. Those who are passive and cowardly in the past, they will be passive and cowardly in the future if there is no repentance. If you do not ignore, if you do not pay attention to problems now, they will get worse for your children. And just like Adam being passive in the garden cursed all of his children, when men are passive, it curses their children. Chris Pratt goes to the future and this cosmic battle between life and death, the cosmic battle between the human race and the white spike monsters, just like we have our constant uh, spiritual warfare against the cosmic principalities of, of evil, um, the devil. It is our war. And it is very important. It is very, very important not to be cowardly in this, but to rise to the occasion and for men to be men. There's a line that you find in the movie where a lot of people do feel like it's not their war. They just want to be passive. In fact, one of the main characters, though he's like the main side character, is a, a man. He's the one on the far right here of this image, if you're looking at this and not just listening. 
And in the beginning, when he goes to fight against the aliens, he's cowardly, he's afraid of them, and he doesn't know what he's going to do about it. But by the end of the movie, he repents of that cowardice and finds his courage. The distinction between male and female is something which is part of the natural law. They complement one another. They pull out their best elements of one another, though they can both destroy one another if they're ungodly. The difference between men and women and their complementary nature is exemplified in this movie. Even with the white spike monsters, the difference between men and women, the males and females of that species, are is found. The males are expendable, just like males have been throughout all of human history um, as sinful creatures. The males are generally expandable. You don't mind killing them in war. The females, however, they are protected. They're very valuable. And one of the great illustrations of this is that there's really just one female of the aliens, but yet she can sustain their entire race. As long as she is alive, they will be alive. Their female is more valuable than all of their males. And similarly, the inverse of that with the main characters, Chris Pratt's daughter, she has the ability to save the whole planet. Just in the same way that the female white spike, and here we've got a picture of the female white spike and the female human together. One can destroy the whole world and save her species. The other can save her species and destroy the entire enemy. And this is just, again, part of the natural law. This is built on biblical principles. Women can give birth, men cannot. Now, this movie, it shows you how the daughter wants her dad to be a dad. And when he is a dad, it pulls out the best of her. And she's able to save the whole world. She's able to be the top scientist who produces the toxin when her dad encourages her into that role when he's being a man. When she is pushing her dad as well, because Adam and Eve, here you've got basically Adam and daughter of Eve. Adam and his, his child. They're... They're interacting with one another, and rather than being Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, this family is actually interacting with one another as God designed us to. When she is spurring her dad along to be the man that he needs to be, to be the hero he needs to be, and he in return is spurring her along to be the scientist she needs to be to pursue truth, to pursue innovation. Beauty happens. And we find out the real truth of how God created us to live. This movie is, is really cool. It's got some visuals a bit like Jurassic Park when they're at the female den. It looks a little bit like Resident Evil when they're kind of out at sea on their rig. And then it looks a little bit like the X-Files in the very end of the movie. But overall, it really does take biblical themes that we need to be implementing in the world around us and advancing them. It's got some clever little cute things like a day of rest for evil where good sends in reinforcements, but this is really talking about men step up in your society. Destruction is coming if you don't. Ladies, you have to step up too. You have to make your men be the best they can be and men have to, to take care of their women. They have to honor them, respect their glory, their beauty. Uh, go, be willing to go and die for them. You know, John 15, 13, no greater love is this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That is illustrated in this movie. Chris Pratt watches his daughter die in the future timeline and is then moved to go back with the toxin she created and stop all the events so that she never really has to die in that end of Earth. When he goes back, the same world that rejected him when he's an alpha man just at home, it rejects him again. They don't care. 
that he's got this toxin. They're all worried about their politics and infighting and their narratives and whatnot. And we're reminded that you don't have to have a seat at the world's table to change things. The world ignored the problem. The world is wanting to be wrapped up in its own evil. Chris Pratt, he's an alpha male. He's proactive. He goes out with a small group. He's kind of like Gideon up against a much larger army. He goes out against these aliens. He's going to go stir them up in their sleep and inject them with the toxin that his daughter made and kill them before they ever can rouse from the rest. And in this, his own dad, who had been a failure, he had walked out on him. He had preferred toys to being a man. He then takes those toys and turns them into tools. He takes his guns. He takes his finances and resources, his access to an airplane, and takes them up to the ice above Russia. And they save the world. Men being men is crucial to us holding order in the world around us. This movie is largely a derivative of the story of the fall, but it's also a foreshadowing and a reflection of many of the themes in Revelation. It shows you, and, and it's fascinating to me, so much of our culture right now is hungry for end times material. And you know what? There's a lot of stuff happening in the world that wasn't possible before, like kings coming together globally, Mark of the Beast, all that stuff is possible now, literally. Not figuratively, not metaphorically, literally. So all the theologians who thought none of this could ever be possible, go excommunicate yourself because it was all it's all possible. It, it was all true. Just as the Revelation 22 tells us, don't add anything to it or take it away. It's all true. It's all possible. Our, our world is so hungry for restoration, so hungry for dads to be dads, for... Adam and Eve to really be Adam and Eve, to be Alpha Adam, Alpha Eve, for them to take and raise their children righteously and not just have Cain and Abel, you know, at war with one another, with Cain killing his brother, to actually be honorable and to be restored into that garden, which we find in the end of Revelation, to do away with the beast, to do away with death, to see Jesus, the faithful and true, roll in on his white horse. This movie is reflect, it's stuck in the tension between those two truths of time and in itself steps outside of time and shows you how we who live in the valley of the shadow of death when we know death is coming how we can step up and persevere through that this movie is so wrapped up in biblical themes that it is remarkable it's not transcendental it's not as compelling as something like it's a wonderful life um, which is my favorite movie of all time but it is very good it's very good. And it's actually a lot better when you sit down and understand its themes than when you just kind of watch it for the sensation of it. It has a lot of undergirding really good things. It's actually very similar to... Many of its themes are very similar to what we find in A Quiet Place, and A Quiet Place too. But this movie does it a little bit more with Chris Platt. Chris Pratt's flair and his emphasis on, on fatherhood specifically. And it, it just is really beautiful. A few final notes about evil in this. Evil is willing to bite its own limb off to save itself. That is true. Evil instinctively knows what will destroy it. Even though there's no rational reason why the female white spike would know who has the toxin, she goes after them. Even after she's roused from her sleep, she goes after them. Uh, but evil always instinctively knows what will destroy it. If you want to be truly repentant, you're going to have to face the evil. The J. Jonah Jameson from Sam Raimi Star, uh, not Star Wars, Spider-Man, 
my brain is crazy. He comes in and he has to face the evil if he wants to have repentance. He has to stand with his stun and doing something dangerous. It's not safe. Safety is not a Christian virtue. Safety is not the same thing as wisdom or prudence. It is not. If someone told you it was, they were lying to you with the scheme from hell. It is not the same thing. If you want to have repentance and forgiveness, you've got to be willing to stand against evil and stand faithfully with the good, true, and beautiful. Chris Pratt's dad is willing to do that, and his son ends up forgiving him and bringing him back into the family, and it's beautiful. So there's our movie review for The Tomorrow War. I encourage you to watch it. As I said, it may not be as compelling as some of the, the many great movies made throughout time, like Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments, but nonetheless, it is very unique in our modern day and age. So with that, thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Brockter. God love you and have a blessed day.